Greetings, mysterious listeners. Welcome to our very first podcast recorded under stay-at-home orders here in May 2020, the year that wasn't. This means you will hear a distinct sound difference between this episode and our other episodes. That's because we recorded this one via Zoom instead of together in the same room as we usually do. Your mysterious hosts hope to be reunited very soon, but in the meantime, please enjoy this first in a series of lockdown listener requests. Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Today, we return to the listener library for a suggestion from two of our mysterious listeners. Mark writes, are you familiar with ancient sorceries written by Algernon Blackwood and presented by Escape? I heard it for the first time a number of years ago when I first started listening to radio drama. I don't mean to overdo the escape program, but it did produce a great variety of dramatic adventures. This one on the eerie side. Our mysterious listener, Anton, also recommended ancient sorceries. And what's more, he suggested we perform it live on stage with Tim playing the lead. Thanks, Anton. Escape was an anthology series from CBS designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. No locale was too exotic, no adventure too dangerous, no escape too narrow. In 1947, Radio Life magazine praised the quality of Escape scripts, declaring, These stories all possess many times the reality that most radio writings convey. From its debut in 1947 to its final broadcast in 1954, Escape produced 230 episodes, including two tales by Algernon Blackwood, Confession, and the story you're about to hear, Ancient Sorceries. Algernon Blackwood was a prolific English writer best known for his supernatural tales of terror and metaphysical awe. Noted horror writer H.P. Lovecraft considered Blackwood a genius, citing his skill in communicating, quote, overtones of strangeness in ordinary things and experiences. Although chiefly known for his ghost stories, Blackwood wrote in many genres, including detective stories, children's fiction, and mystical novels exploring humanity's place in the grand scheme of the cosmos. Ancient Sorceries was first published in the 1908 collection John Silence, Physician Extraordinary. The stories in the collection are linked by the presence of supernatural investigator John Silence, a medical doctor who also happens to be a clairvoyant and master of the occult. Blackwood's John Silence stories combine elements of the weird horror genre with Holmesian narrative structure to create a literary hybrid perfectly suited to the tastes of turn-of-the-century readers. In Ancient Sorceries, Silence appears only briefly as part of a framing device. This is likely why scriptwriter Les Crutchfield chose to replace the character of Silence with a nameless psychiatrist. And now, let's listen to Ancient Sorceries from Escape, first broadcast February 15, 1948. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music and listen to the voices. 
Fed up with shoveling snow? Can't shake that cold of yours? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. village on the Welsh border, surrounded by silent townspeople who were watching and waiting for you to decide to lose your soul. Escape, produced by William N. Robeson and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Today we escape to a remote section of Wales and a strange village between two worlds. As Algernon Blackwood described it in his eerie story, Ancient Sorceries. I had spent a week's vacation in Wales and was returning to London by train when it all began. It was late afternoon. We'd left the Welsh mountains and crossed the border into western England, passing through a countryside which appeared singularly empty, deserted of life. Over the soft hills and the valleys between hung a faintly perceptible haze, giving to the whole landscape a feeling of enchantment and unreality. The train slowed at length, to stop at a tiny wayside station. As it did so, a sudden thought occurred to me. Why not leave the crowded train with its irritating noises and spend the night in this peaceful spot, then take a slower and emptier train in the morning? On the impulse, I rose from my seat, and the man sitting opposite me said, uh, Why, say, sir, hmm? we only stopped here for a minute or two. If you were thinking of walking about a bit... No, I... Matter of fact, I'm getting off here. I thought you were going to London. I'll go on in the morning. I'm going to stay here for the night. I strongly advise you not to. I beg your pardon? This is the village of Malton. Malton? I've never heard of it. Few people have, outside. But if you place any value on your soul, you'll not spend the night here. <laughs> what are you talking about? Why not? Because of the sleep. And because of the cats. That's all I can tell you. You're insane. I'll take my bag now, if you don't mind. You're making a terrible mistake. You may, you may not even get the chance to regret it. Don't leave this train. I know what I'm talking about. Oh, what utter nonsense. Don't. Don't, I tell you. Goodbye. I stood there on the embankment as the train pulled away. <laughs> what was the matter with the man, anyway? Cats, sleep. His words made no sense. I picked up my bag and started walking up the long hill toward the village, and suddenly, for no reason at all, I... I shivered. Hello. Hello, is anyone here? Yes. Oh, Oh, I didn't see you at first. Is there something I can do for you, sir? Why, yes. I I saw your sign outside, the Inn of the Golden Bough. I should like to get a room. 
You're planning to stay here? Why, yes. <laughs> Very well. You may sign the register. Yeah. Thank you. I'm I'm going to catch another train and go on in the morning. Yes, of course. There we are. Arthur Llewellyn. Llewellyn? Yes, from London. Arthur Llewellyn. You've been a long time coming back. What? But now that you're here, you'll find there are some things that never change. Madam, I, I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. You uh, rang, madam? Dundreary, the gentleman would like a room for the night. His name is Arthur Llewellyn. Aye, so it is. Welcome back to Malton, sir. I knew I'd never been here before. What was it all about? First the men on the train, and now these people. Were they crazy, or was I? Well, I left the inn and walked along narrow cobbled streets beneath quaint gables leaning out from the silent, shuttered houses, through dappled pools of light and shadow. As I walked, it gradually dawned upon me that the village of Malton was centuries old, older than any town in England ought to be, and the people I passed now and then were dressed in the fashion of another day. They paid no attention to me, went silently about their own business. Yes, that was it. That's what I'd been noticing. Silently. As I walked, I noticed they came and went with only soft padding sounds to mark their passing, as though they walked in shoes with soles of velvet. When I stopped, there was no sound. The silence was unbroken. I hurried through the streets and came at last to the far side of the village, to a place where the hill broke away sharply from a low, flat wall of stone. Perhaps a rampart once. I sat down upon it, and the dreamy tranquility of the place stole over me. Presently, I don't know how much later, I became aware of the sound of weird music rising out of the veil below me. I looked down from the rampart. The sunken plain at the bottom melted away into a sea of gathering shadow, blurred into a swirl of thickening mist. I thought of dead trees swept by the night wind, of animals with half-human voices singing to a white moon, of the wailing of cats on the roof tiles at night, of unearthly creatures far off in the sky calling to one another in chorus. I, I felt my heart beat faster and faster, felt the vague stirrings of some urge inside of me trying to answer the awful call of that music. I fought against the feeling, fought against myself. And even as I did, I, I found I was staring down into that valley, peering desperately into the dark mist, trying to see I... I don't know what. And then suddenly... The music ended. I stood on the rampart alone, dusk fallen about me, and the early night wind moaned with a chill breath. Quick terror rose up in me. I turned and ran on through the darkened streets, ran with heart pounding, dodging its shadows, through one dim alley after another. 
and arrived at last panting and almost breathless at the door of the Golden Bow. You've been a long time returning, Mr. Llewellyn. It's past seven. Yes, I... I guess I walked farther than I meant to. I didn't realize it was so late. You heard the music, didn't you? Yes. Yes, the strangest music I've ever heard. How did you know? Who plays it, anyway? Then you didn't remember it? No. Why should I? The thing was becoming irritating. This quiet insistence that I was someone else. I went into my lonely dinner and ate as quickly as possible. Then, taking the candle Dundreary gave me, I crossed the lobby, climbed the stairs behind the desk, and walked past silent doors down the long, empty hall that led to my room at the end. I was halfway to my door when suddenly the flame of my candle went out. I stood stock still in the pitch blackness, fumbling for a match. And at that moment, I knew that someone or something was there with me in the darkness. I held my breath and listened. There was no sound, no movement. I reached out and found the wall and moved along and feeling my way in the inky blackness. It was then I I touched it. Near my face, another soft, warm yielding. And alive. Who? Who is it? It is I, Ilsa. Who? Ilsa. Don't you remember me, Arthur? No. No. (laughs) But wouldn't you like to remember me? Don't you want to see me again? To look at me? No. I... I don't know. (laughs) But not tonight, Arthur. Perhaps tomorrow. 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 I stumbled blindly through the door of my room and shut it behind me. I lit the candle and flung myself across the bed. The room was small with one shuttered window and the light of the flame flickered on the walls and ceiling. I stared at the hand that had touched her out there in the dark hall. I lifted it to my face and smelled the barbaric scent that still clung to my fingers. It was evil and maddening. The candle sputtered and burned and the melted minutes dripped away. Who was I? Who were these people? Who was Ilsa? I fell asleep finally and dreamed of soft moving creatures and the silence of life in a dim, muffled world devoid of all feeling but ecstasy. And I dreamed, too, of cats. You've slept quite late this morning, Mr. Llewellyn. Morning, Dundreary. I felt as though I'd been drugged. The night air here in Malton is very conducive to sleep. I'd meant to catch the morning train to London. Now it's too late. What a terrible shame. Yes, I... Oh, by the way, Dundreary. Yes, Mr. Llewellyn? Do you... I... 
I mean, I was wondering if you'd know anyone by the name of Ilsa. Ilsa happens to be my daughter, Mr. Llewellyn. Oh, I, I didn't hear you come in. I hope you were able to sleep well without unpleasant dreams. I guess so. I... I'm so happy to hear it. Perhaps then you may decide to stay with us for a long time. That's, that's very kind of you. No, it's not kindness, Mr. Llewellyn. But all of us are hoping that you may decide soon. Decide? Decide what? It was no use. None of them would answer my questions. They seem to think I should know already. I left the inn as soon as I'd eaten, walked around the streets of the village. I began to notice I was never completely alone. If I turned down an empty street, someone always stepped from a doorway or entered from the opposite end. Wherever I went, within five minutes, a dozen people were strolling near me. And I realized these people were watching me tensely as a cat watches a mouse or another cat. It's quite fortunate you came back early, Mr. Llewellyn. Your dinner this evening is a rather special one. Special? What do you mean by that? You are to have a guest. Oh, who? An old friend. She's coming now. The girl who came toward us across the room was lithe and slim. She moved with the sinuous grace of a young panther. She was lovely. Exotic and terrifyingly beautiful. May I present Mr. Arthur Llewellyn, Miss Ilsa? He's been with us for two days. Yes, I know. My mother told me. May I sit down, Mr. Llewellyn? Hmm? Oh. Oh, yes, please do. Here, permit me. Thank you. You may serve us, Dundreary. Thank you, Miss Ilsa. Then, you're Ilsa? Yes. Don't you remember me, Arthur? From last night. It was you last night, wasn't it? Yes, and other nights. Can't you remember all the other nights? No. No. Then we shall have to try that much harder. It's been such a very long time. Please, Ilsa. What is it all of you talk about? I, I don't understand any of it. You will, Arthur. Unless you leave, of course. Weren't you planning to take a train to London in the morning? Yes. Uh, no. No, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I'm glad you did. We'll try to make you happy here, my mother and I. And then perhaps you'll stay a long, long time. No. I must leave for sure in a day or two. Suppose we wait and see. And meanwhile, if there's anything you want, all you have to do is ask me. All right. Why don't you tell me about... Uh... Yes, Arthur. About what? No. 
No, I don't want to know. I don't want you to tell me. Suddenly I realized I was afraid to know. I was afraid. I should leave now. But I couldn't leave. It was Ilsa. She attracted, repelled, fascinated and horrified me. All in single flashes of blasting emotion. I felt the presence of a great grey curtain ready to roll back at any moment and leave me on the brink of an awful adventure. And I knew the village held its breath, watched and waited. And then on the evening of the fifth day, the whole ghastly secret exploded into hideous life. After dinner, Elsa had asked me to walk with her. It was the first time I'd been outside the inn after dark. We walked through the village in the moonlight, saying very little, and came finally to the stone rampart above the sunken plain. We were quite alone. Look, Arthur. Hmm? It's a full moon tonight. Do you know what that means? Yes. It means I can see more clearly how beautiful you are. Do you really believe that? Do you think I'm beautiful? Hmm. Like a soft, sleek leopard and a warm jungle of shadows. But wait, I'll see you even better in a moment. Arthur, what are you doing? These dry leaves by the wall. They'll make an excellent bonfire. There. There, you see? No. No. What's wrong? The fire. No, Arthur, put it out. All right, Ilsa. Don't worry, it's all right. There. Didn't even get a chance to get started. There, you see, it's out. Yes, I see. Why did it bother you so much? Don't you remember? Don't you remember the fire? No. What fire? <sighs> no. Don't talk of it. Look at me instead. Look at me, Arthur. Yes, Ilsa? Arthur, do you love me? Yes. Yes, Ilsa, I... I love you. I'm glad. That means you'll come back to us, then. I don't know what you mean, Ilsa. You can know everything. Tonight... If you want to. Yes, I do. I do, Ilsa. You must know a part of it already, down inside. You must remember some of it, don't you? Yes. It's like something buried for centuries, deep inside of me. Now it's beginning to come alive. Let it come alive. Don't fight against it. You belonged to us once, long ago, and you still belong. Yes. I seem to know that. That's why you came back. You heard me calling. You heard them calling. And you came seeking the old life again. Yes, but... Ilsa, I, I'm afraid. Are you afraid of me? Look at me. Ilsa. Will you live the old life again? With me tonight? Yes. Yes. Oh, I've known that you would, because I own you, Arthur. You yes. belong to me, and I want you to come with me. I shall never let you escape from me again. Yes, yes. Go back to the inn, then. Wait for me, Arthur. I shall come for you tonight. Back at the inn, I paced the floor of my room. A tense, uncontrollable excitement driving me along in a nervous frenzy. 
The dry crypt of the memory had broken open and all the things I'd hidden away for centuries poured into my consciousness. I knew now why I'd come here. I knew what I was going to do. And I knew that I was lost. I sensed the rising stir of movement throughout the inn and outside in the courtyard below my window. I knew what to expect when I threw open the window. From every window of the inn and from those of the houses about the court were leaping great monstrous beasts with soft dark fur and eyes that gleamed with eerie phosphorescence. Cats! Cats of human size! This was the secret of Molten. Lycanthropy. The witchcraft of centuries long dead and buried. The half-human cries floated up to me. And the moon cast their dark shadows on the ground as they padded across the courtyard and vanished through the narrow streets of the village, heading for a hideous rendezvous. This is what I'd been. This is what I wanted to be now. <laughs> I scarcely heard the door of the room open behind me. Are you ready, my love? Shall we join them? Yes. Here, Arthur, the sacred bomb made of a vein and mistletoe and blind things out of the sea. Remember? Yes. Yes, I remember. Take it. Use it. We'll change now. Transform. Leap from the window and join them. Lead us again, Arthur. Yes. But not here, Ilsa. Not yet. Wait until we get there. Then we'll change. If you wish. Come then, Arthur. To the stone wall above the grove. That's where we'll change. On the stone rampart. In the grove on the sunken plain beneath the wall, insane shadows writhed in the moonlight and postured in the luminous mist. A thousand of the devil's own were dancing in an unearthly music, born from the harmony of the black sacrifice, crying out in delirious abandon, calling to the thing that now lived inside of me and struggled screaming in my skull, trying to answer them back. I fought against them, fought against Ilsa, pleading and clinging with her soft arms about my neck. No, no, Arthur, come with me now if you love me. I love you, but I can't do it. I can't do it, not again, Ilsa. Yes, my love, only an instant to change and then we'll live forever. Is it living without a soul? Does it matter when I'm here? Oh. No, once before I escaped. But I could never escape again. This time there'd be no turning back. Am I not worth it? Look at me, look at me, my love. I clung to the very edge of sanity. Thought that I'd not be lost and damned forever. And at that very moment I knew... Knew what Arthur, I could do. Wait. What are you doing? I found a match in my pocket, struck, dropped it into the dry leaves that lay banked along the whole length of the stone wall. No. No, Arthur, don't. I can't come to you through the fire. You're driving me away. Yes, go. Go into the valley, Ilsa. Goodbye, Ilsa. Goodbye. You fool. You fool. I turned from the wall of flame that for a few minutes would shut me off from the valley. Ran through the moonlit streets, not back to the inn of the Golden Bar, but down the long road that led away from that cursed village of Malton.
Well, Mr. Llewellyn, I find this one of the most interesting cases of hallucination I've encountered since I began the practice of psychiatry. I tell you it really happened, Doctor. And having investigated your story a bit during the past week, I'm in a position now to answer most of the questions that have been worrying you since you came back to London. What do you mean, investigated? I went up to Hereford and looked over some of the old records there. And then I motored over to Morton for a couple of hours. Well, then you know it's all true. You saw it. You know I was there. Oh, there's no question but what you were there, Mr. Llewellyn. The lady who runs the inn showed me your name in the register. Said you'd left quite suddenly without taking your luggage or paying your bill. She was really quite put out. I see. Well, what about the records, Doctor? The ones you spoke of? I think they really explain the whole thing, Mr. Llewellyn. It seems that during the 14th century... The village of Morton became a kind of headquarters in that part of the country for the practice of witchcraft. Yes. Go on. Numerous trials were held there in the late 1300s, and a great many men and women were convicted of sorcery and burned to death. Yes. In the records of a trial in 1372, I found the name of an Arthur Llewellyn and of Ilsa and her mother. That proves it, then. Yes. Proves a clear case of hallucination. You knew that story before you went there. Not consciously, but somewhere down in your latent memory. I knew nothing of it before. That man was an ancestor of yours. The story must have been known in your family. When you arrived in Malton accidentally, the association of the name just pulled the trigger. And your imagination did the rest. But, Doctor, my, my parents died when I was four. I, I've never been around any of my family. No matter... You see, a childhood memory is amazingly persistent at times. Yes. Yes, I suppose it is. I knew then what I had to do. The only thing I could do. There'd be no use in talking further with the doctor. He'd find some phrase of science to cover everything. He'd even try to explain away the mark I still carried across my shoulder, where Ilse had thrown her arm about me in those last mad minutes on the rampart. A mark that was covered with a soft gray fur, like the fur of a cat. Yes, I knew now what had to be done. And must be done while I still retained my sanity. One last act final and irrevocable. An act that begins by walking into the railway station at Charing Cross. Good evening, sir. May I help you? Yes. I'd like a ticket to Malton. Malton? I don't believe I have. It's a village on the Swansea line near the border of Wales. Oh, yes. Yes, here it is. I don't believe I've ever sold a ticket to Malton before. I don't doubt it. Let's see now. Four and six. Single fare. First class. Did you wish a return? Or one way? What did you say? Oh. oh I'm sorry. I... Make it... One way.
Escape. Produced by William N. Robeson and directed by Norman MacDonald, today brought you Ancient Sorceries by Algernon Blackwood. Adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, with Paul Fries as Arthur Llewellyn, Kay Brinker as Ilsa, Anne Morrison as Madam, and William Conrad as the Doctor. Music is conceived by Cy Fewer with Eddie Dunstetter at the console. Next week... After you've had a hard day at the office or bending over a hot stove, next week at this time, when your problems seem too much for you, we offer you... Escape. Next week, we bring you another exciting story of high adventure. Goodbye, then, until this same time next week, when once again we offer you... Escape. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. Ancient Sorceries from Escape here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. That was a listener request that came to us from a couple of different listeners. And thanks to both of you for your suggestions, especially the suggestion that we do that uh, live on stage. I'm not sure I understand why Tim gets to be the lead, but okay. Because <laughs> I'm awesome. <laughs> well... Yes, but I think there should be some kind of audition process, perhaps. <laughs> uh, no, I think that that actually would be a great choice. Uh, and speaking of the lead, I just want to get this out there. That's Conrad, right? Paul Fries. I fell for it too, but yeah. Okay, so that is Paul Fries doing an impression of William Conrad, who in turn is doing an impression of Orson Welles. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear William Conrad in there, but he does... Freeze, particularly when he's doing that transatlantic accent, sounds a lot like Orson Welles. Yeah, doesn't he? Like, the script itself is written like Orson Welles wrote it. Uh, that kind verbose. of uh, Yeah, verbose. Bloviating. Uh, yeah, it's very stylized. <laughs> well, William Conrad was in it. He did yeah. the announcer, and yeah. he plays the psychiatrist at the end. Yeah, and I don't know why I didn't go, oh, Paul Freeze, that wasn't William Conrad. You know, because I'm lazy, so I just went, well, I listened to it, I'm done. But um, <laughs> I did hear the name Paul Fries and thought, why? There was no parrot. I didn't hear a parrot or any, <laughs> or any kind of animal sound other than the cats. Do you think Paul Fries did all the cats? <laughs> he might have. So we now know when the cat wife died, where she goes. She goes yeah. to this town in Wales. <laughs> well, this is kind of the third in an audio triptych we have created featuring sexually rapacious women who transform into cats. <laughs> <laughs> Starting with Catwife and then the Queen of Cats and ending with this, which, spoiler, I will say is the best of the three. Yeah. If you're into stories of women turning into cats, yeah, which I am. <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt this is the best of the three. However, did you have the moment where you were seeing the cast members from the musical Cats running through the town? 
There's never well, that. Now moment. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for spoiling it. They were standing on their legs, human-sized cats, and I went, "Oh, it's the Judy cat. Dench." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I've got some opinions about this. Uh, I think I would just like to open it up first because in this particular podcast, this episode, I'd really like to take a back seat and hear some opinion before I spout mine. Tim, let's just start with you. This is my sweet spot. I'm totally charmed by this story. I am culturally, for those of you who would know the name Uren, is Cornish, uh, so which is kind of South Welsh. So this is my people's story, my neighbor's people's story, I guess. So the story, the beautiful description of the miscovered valleys and the strange calling that sort of means something, sort of doesn't, that's all beautiful and I totally fall for it. Only have a couple small complaints with it. One of it is like, oh, it's it's cat werewolves. Okay, we're cats. And then that kind of ugh, is a clunky moment in it but overall i loved it yeah the description of where they're at is beautiful and gosh doesn't it sound great at the top when he says i'm gonna just spend a night in this quaint town and i'm like yeah good idea like before you know the guy warns him i'm a sucker for a lot of tropes and one of those tropes is the cryptic warning from a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the train just hires that guy to ride the line. <laughs> <laughs> works for me every time. I love it. Yeah, that guy's job is to sit on the train, and if anybody tries to get off when we stop here, tell them no. <laughs> There's the cats. I can't say any more than that. <laughs> I like that his warning is like sleep and cats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, could and, you elaborate? <laughs> and Arthur's like, that makes no sense. But if you own cats, you know that that's a pretty legit warning about combining <laughs> sleep and cats. <laughs> what if uh, this entire village was just cats who woke you up early, standing on <laughs> your pillow meowing at you for breakfast? <laughs> that is that is the my unspeakable life. horror. My cats do that at four in the morning. That's when they start. Uh, I am actually considering buying more throw pillows for the bed just to have something to throw at them. Because <laughs> actual throw pillows. Um, you said it got clunky for you. The wear cats at the end is the, the ending, the clunky thing for you? Yeah, because it was this, as typical for Blackwood, although parenthetically, wow, his titles are really kind of, I put two seconds of thought and like, uh, ancient sorceries, good enough. Um, <laughs> However, I, I must say it at least hides the twist. True, it does. Right? He didn't call it Village of the Cat People like Arch Ogler would call it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so mystic and ambiguous in, in, a, in a way that I really like, which I know not everybody does, but I do. And then it's like, oh, they're werecats. I'm, like I said, I'm going to save my opinion. Joshua. Uh, I want to hear your your thoughts, and then I'll just start saying stuff. <laughs> well, I had a day off today, so I started my morning by reading Algernon Blackwood's short story first because I was curious about it. Listeners don't remember, uh, the other Algernon Blackwood story we have discussed was the adaptation of The Wendigo, which is one of my favorite short stories uh, in the weird horror genre. I would say that I was not that impressed by ancient sorceries, um, and so a lot of my perspective here is... I feel like Les Crutchfield took a weak short story and really pinpointed the 
best parts of it and the best parts of it for audio and made a radio drama that, in my opinion, is superior to the short story. Ah. And ironically, Tim, the short story is not set in Wales. It's set in France. So all those descriptions are actually <laughs> of a French village that he just lifts and moves to Wales. Blackwood, I'm so mad at you. <laughs> all right. So this thing starts really well because it's on a train. And I love trains in old time radio. And I got disappointed when they got off the train. <laughs> the train was really cool. I love the idea of I'm going to stay here in this town. It would be something that I would do. Like, look at this cool town. If we've got time, let's stay here. And it just sounds so quaint and wonderful and like such a good idea. Then he gets this warning. And then this is what I wrote. At what point in a series of events do you finally say, you know what? That's it. I'm out. When do things get too weird? And there's so many things happening to this guy from everybody warning him and the woman at the inn and then everybody in silence. And then he goes to a cliff and looks into a valley and weird music is playing, which by the way, never explained. Or if it was, I missed it. And I'm sure Joshua's got an essay about it for me. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a point in stories like this where I, I struggle with character choices like at some point it's got to be in this real world of okay that's it this is too weird i got to get out of here i got to do something and then you can but you stop them from doing those things embedded in the script at the core of this is that he has this massive attraction anxiety so your criticism is at the heart of the story is that he can't make himself leave despite the fact that any other person would run. And that's why he's warned not to go. He even at one point describes his attraction to her as he's fascinated and repulsed. And it's all this simultaneous. He wants to run for his life, but also surrender completely to her and the village. And so to me, I think that, script 100% deals with that yes. at the heart of the story. And right before you jumped in, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but because we're Likely on story, because we're on zoom and we can't talk over each other. I got to sit and listen to you pontificate. No, what I was saying was that that's where the story was for me for a while. And then when it started to reveal the motivations of he's 800 years old, soul and he's being driven and the attraction, then that actually solved that for me. So everything you just said actually brought it back around for me. But just jumping to the ending, I'm kind of with Tim that I thought there were a lot of elements that weren't tied up and not a great payoff at the end. Um, let's start with this. Was there an explanation as to where the music was coming from? I mean, was it a guy? Please tell me it was a guy in a canyon with an organ. <laughs> <laughs> Parenthetically, yeah. that does remind me of this escape episode has the awesome Wurlitzer version of Night on Bald Mountain, so, which yeah. I love. Like, wow. So I'll just assume that, yes, there's a guy with a Wurlitzer organ in the valley. Look, do they explain story-wise where the music was coming? The music is coming from the village. He's up on the ramparts looking down on the village, and the villagers are playing this strange music. Ah! It is ah. undermined by the fact that they just 
have an organ to create the incidental music. See, in my head, he went up to the ramparts and was, because they mentioned he's looking into the valley. I thought he was looking away from the town into some like dark valley where this music was coming gotcha. from. That is what I thought as well. And I just assumed it was the, you know, Brigadoon song comes rolling out, which I know is not the <laughs> right. Maybe I'm wrong too, though, because if he's looking into the woods, around there which is where the all the cats go to conduct their <laughs> dark ceremonies um, <laughs> maybe it's coming from there as well but i took it as a, basically some sort of ceremonial music to uh, foreshadow the dark sabbath that these cat people are about to have at the end before he lights the fire to chase her away i love your explanation better if he goes out of town and is looking back into the town and here's the music. Then it, it's like they were doing their cat revelry in the town, and that's where the music was coming from. And that that helps me a lot more. Do you know how many sentences have been uttered in the last four minutes that are ridiculous? Cat revelry. Uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous. They're cat rituals. Cat rituals, yeah. Okay, so then moving on, what's the driving force here? They were all burned in the 14th century for being witches, mm-hmm. and these are their ghosts that have come back to life as humans that turn into cats. Is that the basic plot line? At least he seems to be uh, reborn in, in a descendant. I don't know if that is what they're all meant to be or if they just live super long lives there. Oh, you're left to wonder if this is either reincarnation, if it is some kind of race or ancestral memory. Uh, the psychiatrist suggests that it is just a hallucination based on a subconscious memory of a story being told about one of his ancestors. However, we know that's not exactly true because Arthur says that he has cat for growing out of the spots where Ilsa put her arms around him at the end because so- of that balm. And I do want to mention that balm, which I think is really my favorite part of this whole lycanthropy story, that it is not a full moon or something that transforms them that they use this strange magical ointment in the story they just explicitly say it's given to them by satan these guys are evil cats (laughs) (laughs) um but it's this very intentional choice that they a magic they have to apply in a really practical sense to become these dark creatures of the night well and that would have helped Catwife a lot any kind of balm explanation <laughs> would have helped that story a lot that, oh, that's how she's doing it. Some but, sort of lubricant to make it go a little easier. <laughs> we are 12 years old. My problem then is it's a loosey-goosey idea. It's not very cut and dried. Like No, it's not supposed to be, though. I, I get that you don't like it, but, I mean, it's meant to be, I think, an ambiguous ending. They were alive in the 14th century. They got burned as witches. And what they're doing there, why they have a balm, why they are turning into cats, why uh, have they been alive this long? Are they reincarnated? None of that is answered. Where the music's coming from and what you're saying is that's part of the charm of this is that it's all a bunch of unanswered loose ends that are supposed to be scary. Is that correct? That's being Welsh. That's what that is. That's the charm of the Welsh. Yes. (laughs) But is that basically the idea behind the story is that you're not supposed to know all these answers? 
I think so. I think you're supposed to make guesses. I, I think there are versions that have more evidence in the story that you could argue that they do live a long time, that they are using dark magic to keep themselves alive. There is the dark appeal of this magic. But at one point, Arthur says, is it worth living forever without a soul? So the right. suggestion is that perhaps they have lived a long time or lived through reincarnation from generation to generation, but at a cost. And so if you listen to that, that's what gives the ending a little bit of power is that he has completely surrendered to this. And he's basically going to return to the village and give up his soul. I do think though that there is some amount of this that is ambiguous in a way that I like and some amount of it that is inconsistent in a way that I have to pick at a little bit. Mm, because when I went back and listened a second time and he goes and the lady at the hotel says, oh, you've been away a long time. Like that's a mysterious thing to say and it's fun and ambiguous. But then when you know, like because he was burned centuries ago, that's a weird thing to say to someone who was burned centuries ago. That's like, <laughs> that's she, not the greeting I'd expect. But she who said that was also burned a long time ago <laughs> and clearly came back to the village. So he's late by other burned people's standards. <laughs> and I, I can't say I know what the actual social interaction would be in that situation. It just seems weird that it's a little casual yeah. given the scope of what this is. So you want to really dig into reincarnation etiquette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel a little bad on his behalf of like, I, if I knew that I was this reincarnated witch, I wish he'd had to be a little more excited about me coming back. <laughs> The 14th century, they're all burned. There they are. They're burned. They're charred. And then they get up and they go, if we only had some balm. And then they find some balm and they put it on and they become cats. And then they live forever. Is that pretty much right? I had to spitball. I'd say they were burned. And then they woke up in their children's bodies and got the balm that they already had and just reapplied balm to themselves. You just wrote that. I think at the core, if you need as literal an answer as you're looking for, this is not the story for you. Right. That's what I'm getting at is I'm more than willing to accept that that is the point of the story. And that's great. But you know me, Pulp Fiction was all about, why didn't you tell me what was in the briefcase? That was stupid. There's My favorite part of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> why would I sit through a whole movie and not be told what's in the briefcase? That's annoying. You know, for me, that's hard if I don't get answers and I don't know where the organ was coming from and all of that. <laughs> if that's the intent, I get it. We've been talking about the big picture, the big narrative. What I would like to give this episode credit for is some of the scenes. That's my next on my list. And I'll let you go. But God, it has some beautiful moments. Yeah. Having read the short story, I think this script is an excellent lesson in adapting a story for radio because uh, Les Crutchfield pinpoints every audio cue in the text and transforms each one of them into these really effective radio moments. The best example, I think, is when Arthur is describing the silent movement of the villagers as if oh, they yeah. walked in shoes with soles of velvet. And then we hear just that single set of footsteps, which is Arthur's. Yep. That's stops for that moment and he says when i stopped there was no silence the silence was unbroken and we just get that beat of silence before his footsteps start again and that's just 
beautiful and it's from the short story but it has way more power transformed into a radio scene yeah uh, one of the other fantastic moments was the entire scene when his match goes out in the hallway and he's in the dark yes and he feels around and he starts narrating what he's doing and it's terrifying and then he touches her face and he can't see her they have the conversation he walks away that was a brilliant moment of radio drama uh really terrifying what i love about that as a radio scene is because it starts in this area of horror because he's feeling along and we as listeners can't see he can't see and then he touches something and it's close to his face and it's something soft and warm and yielding and alive and you're like (laughs) it's a girl But then, yes, you hear her warm, purring voice. And suddenly it's like she's talking to you and she says, don't you want to see me (laughs) to look at me? And like suddenly it just totally transforms into this from this horror to this sensual thing, which I think as a radio scene encapsulates his whole attraction anxiety that is happening to him throughout the entire story. I also like the description when he gets into the bedroom where he can smell the scent of evil on his fingers from touching her. I think that's a beautiful, beautifully written it's moment. beautiful and gross. So again, yeah. it has that attraction <laughs> anxiety thing. Yeah, the scent of evil that clung to her fingers. I do like the, the barbaric writing. barbaric scent, he describes yeah. it as. Yeah, yeah. I do like the writing. You know, as we've discussed before, sometimes that Orson Welsick, if that's a phrase, it is now that stylized uh, can get to me, but I really did enjoy the descriptions of everything in this particular show. And uh, Blackwood loves his descriptions. I mean, the problem with the short story is it is three times as long as it needs to be because Algernon Blackwood loves to go on and on and on. And uh, Les Crutchfield being confined in 30 minutes takes the best of his language and descriptions and then moves us along. We don't have to wallow in it. He doesn't yeah, have the logaria of Blackwood. <laughs> <laughs> Another kind of a, an issue I had, why, why are they so reluctant to tell him what's going on? Why not just, okay, here's the deal. So you were alive in the 14th century, and, you know, why not just tell him? The radio show would be 10 minutes long, Eric. <laughs> well, you've got to come Eric's up- version. It's like he gets off the train. Hey, want to be a cat? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you've got to have motivation for them not telling him, and I don't. I didn't find the motivation well, for them. They're trying to lull him into this, and I do think, to a certain extent, it's the rhythm of cats. Right? They have that idea, like, "Hey, come be with me." No, don't. <laughs> oh, I love that assessment. Thank you. That's pretty cool. We have that moment too, where he says he asks them that question or stops himself because he doesn't want to know. It goes back to him. They aren't offering up the questions, and he can't bring himself to ask it because he's frightened of the answer. Right. There's this interesting rhythm too of what's going to keep him there, if anything is, is his love for this woman, um, and this slow reveal of her. Of at first he just sorts of feels her face and hears her voice. And then he gets to see her face and a temptation, a person tease. I don't, we can cut that out. That's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And we're not cutting that out, are we? Nope. Nope. (laughs) Nope. Nope. That's going to be the tag at the end. (laughs) All right, gentlemen, any other thoughts about this particular escape episode? Yeah. I just have the one thing of the Welsh dialect is my favorite dialect in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a dialect fanatic. I love to 
try to speak in dialects, to think about dialects, how they're different. Uh, it's a little actor interest of mine. Uh, I have some degree of skill in it, but the Welsh dialect is my favorite to listen to. It has eluded me as a dialect able to do until Torchwood hit the air. I'm like, ah, now I can hear this all the time. And it totally makes this show worth it. Going into this, like, Wales, Paul Freeze, this will be great. He's playing a Londoner who doesn't really speak with an accent, and everybody else just sort of gently suggests the Welsh dialect. So it was a little disappointing to me in that regard. Can you give us a little Welsh accent, Tim? It will become Irish pretty easily if you listen to interviews with Anthony Hopkins, who is Welsh. When he's using his regal voice, it has a little bit of this sort of dialect to it. I'm, if you're actually from Wales and you hear me, you think, oh my God, you're ruining my dialect. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> I thought for sure you'd say, shut up. I didn't think you were actually going to do it. <laughs> well I mean, done. It, it is just a, like, hey, why don't you bust out the guitar and play a little Stairway to Heaven? It's, yeah. that's, <laughs> this is why Anton wanted you to play the lead. Yeah. Because obviously this should be a story in a Welsh dialect adapted from a French story. Oh. Yeah, I, I will say this nerdy bit of trivia. Uh, Les Crutchfield did change Arthur's last name from the story, Vizin or something, I guess because in the short story it took place in France, but to Llewellyn, which is a very Welsh name. Great Welsh name, like four L's, a W, three and a half N's. It's, <laughs> yes, it's three, yeah. and a, three and a half. <laughs> I was going to write an N and then I just got tired. <laughs> it's a lot of work. All right, let's send her to the vote. Joshua, you are first. I wouldn't say this is a classic, but like I said earlier, it is a great lesson in radio adaptation. It's beautiful. I would suggest if you're feeling extremely nerdy, read the short story, then listen to this and see how well Crutchfield crunched all the ideas down to a 30-minute format and in some ways, improved upon them. So, frankly, this would be a classic in other uh, series, perhaps. Um, it tells you just how good of a series Escape is, and that a kind of standard Escape episode is full of just excellent examples of how to do radio drama. Tim? I agree with that totally. It has a few little things of complaints to it that I think a little pacing, tonal shifts that I, I didn't care for, but... As an overall adaptation, I think it's phenomenal. Uh, and as a produced piece of radio drama, I think Escape always does a great job. And this is as good an example as any. Stands the test of time. It's not a classic because the, the actual story that it's based on doesn't hold up as, many, as well as some of the other Escape stories. I thought that uh, it was a beautifully produced piece with a lot of really great scenes and some really phenomenal radio drama moments. I love the idea of getting off a train and staying in a strange town and weird things are going on. I think it had, as we discussed, uh, too many layers and it didn't wrap it up for me. And so I wasn't totally in love with the storyline. I will agree with all of you and say, absolutely stands the test of time, but we'll not call it a classic just because it's a little loosey-goosey for me in the plot. And also because it made me uh, imagine the cast of uh, Cats, the musical, walking around a town. <laughs> I won't forgive them for that because they were all different bright colors and it was terrible. All that being said, uh, Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is on with this podcast. You'll find other episodes of the podcast there. It's a great way to get a hold of us too. Uh, thank you again to our listeners for recommending this to us. If you have an episode you want to recommend to us, uh, you can leave comments and episodes. You can link to our social media pages. You can just send us a straight old message. Just let us know if you have anything you'd like us to listen to and we'll get to it eventually. I usually say right here that you can go to patreon.com slash the morals and give us money. But I will recognize that right now we are in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> and uh, I think some people are feeling some financial crunches. So instead of asking for money, I'm just going to thank all the patrons who have given us money and continue to support us. Uh, thank you so much. During a tough time, it certainly helps us out. And uh, thank you. Also, uh, as if you're a regular listener, you know that we do recreations live on stage of old-time radio shows, of course, with the recent things that are going on here in May of 2020. Uh, we're not able to be on stage, but we have come up with a very unique solution and actually have done one of our online shows. And what we're doing is recording radio shows and playing those live with a live uh, question and answer session afterward. We're doing that at Park Square Theater in St. Paul. Now, we used to say, if you're in town, stop in and see us. But now with this new format, anybody in the world can buy a ticket and go to parksquaretheater.org. Our next show is on May 11th. Uh, we have them in June. We have them in July. We have them in August. And as Joshua said in our last show, it was really cool. Everybody is gathering around their radio and listening to old radio shows. So... Uh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of throwbacky that uh, you buy a ticket and sit with your family and listen to this. Again, we should also say that we are going to be providing uh, links to the recorded version of these shows to our Patreon supporters. So hold off buying tickets if you're a Patreon supporter, because we're going to make that a, a benefit because uh, we appreciate your support. Uh, so you can get them that way too, just being Patreon. But if you want to get a ticket, go to parksquaretheater.org. That's theater with the R-E, not the E-R. Theater. <laughs> and uh, speaking of being locked in our homes, we're also moving forward for a while here, going to do something nice for all of our podcast listeners. Isn't that right, Joshua? Are we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember what we're doing. <laughs> we are going to pretty much exclusively be doing listener requests here because we have such a backlog and we appreciate your enthusiasm and your suggestions. So until then, Look out! but not tonight, Arthur, perhaps tomorrow, 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 a person tease.